0: I uh, lost my hearing in my left ear when I was a young man and uh, have learned to compensate over the years and they finally have developed uh, a hearing aid that will help me and I've started wearing it and this is the first time that I've heard our choir in stereo so it was great I ran into a friend on the street the other day who said I heard you've retired and I said no no I've actually moved into another ministry and I'm probably as busy if not busier than I was before and he said well do you know what it means to retire and I said no tell me and he said well that means you get a new set of tires and you can go faster and further than you ever went before there may be some truth in that Would you take your Bibles and turn to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, and we want to continue Paul's before and after uh, view of our life with God. In the opening verses, verses 1 through 10, he talks about what it means for us individually, uh, what our life was like before Christ and after he came into our life, and now he is continuing that argument that before and after picture but applying it to us corporately as a church now as I was looking at this text this past week and thinking about the terminology and the way Paul develops his argument I realized that for many people uh, in this congregation uh, Paul's argument would be almost unintelligible even after I taught on it because uh, <laughs> that's not unusual but I mean the uh, the, the thing about this, text is that it presupposes an enormous amount of understanding of the Old Testament, particularly what I think of as the integrating core of the Old Testament. Most of us look at the older part of the Bible in terms of a series of stories, somewhat like the stories that have grown up around American history, you Now, George Washington throwing a dollar across the Rappahannock or whatever the river was that he threw it across, and They seem to have, at least in our mind, no relationship to the center core of historical thinking. And that's true of the Old Testament. What is the hard core, the integrating core around which all of these stories gather? And uh, that's something that we don't talk about much. And to talk about the promise, to talk about the land, to talk about the temple, to talk about the seed... Uh, is to talk about concepts that are poorly understood for, for some people. Now, many of you may understand at first reading what Paul is talking about, but I think some of you might not. So, what I wanted to do is give you a once over lightly of the Old Testament before we look at this text. Now, that's a big chore uh, in 30 minutes, so fasten your seatbelts and uh, here we go. You have to start in the beginning, which is the Book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis is well named. The Hebrews called it Bereshit, in the beginning. They just took the first three words. Actually, it's one word in Hebrew, but first three words in our English text, and that became the name of the title. Our our word Genesis is is taken from the Greek translations of the Old Testament, but basically they mean the same thing. Uh, this is the these are the origins. These are the beginnings. This is the seed plot from which everything springs. And seed plot is a good term because it's exactly what we're talking about. The integrating core, the center of all of the Old Testament and the New Testament for that matter is this notion of the seed. Now Genesis 1 starts with the story of creation and I wouldn't argue 30 seconds with anyone over when it happened whether we're talking about a recent earth or an ancient earth because to do so is to miss the point of the story. If you had lived In the pre-Genesis world, you would understand what a bombshell the story of creation is. Because the ancient world looked upon everything, all the forces of nature as malevolent. It was a scary world in which to live. And along comes the book of Genesis, where we read that God loves us very much. That he's behind all the forces of nature. And that, as a matter of fact, he created everything for our good. The uh, phrase, God created and said it was good, demands the question, good in terms of what? Good in terms of us. He did everything for our sake. He demonstrates that chronologically in chapter 1 and logically in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he creates a garden and he places man in the garden. If you read it carefully, the text says he planted a garden in Eden. Eden is not some little spot in the ancient Near East. Eden is the universe, I believe. The garden was in Eden. The garden was the special place that God made for this first woman, this first man. And uh, he planted a garden there to give them some guidelines. What he wanted was that the first couple would begin, and their descendants, would begin to be co-labors with God in turning the whole universe into a paradise, into an Eden, a garden. But as you know, the whole thing went awry. The uh, snake entered the garden, seduced the heart of the woman away, seduced the man away, and the whole race fell. But God immediately stepped in with a redemptive promise. Start thinking about that word, promise. Genesis 3.15, God said to the man and, and the woman, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Remarkable state, statement. The seed of the woman is some man. Poorly understood in the Old Testament uh, because the uh, because seed in Hebrew, as in English, can be collective as well as individual. It could be talking about a, a number of descendants, or it could be talking about one. So in the beginning, it's not quite clear. But there's this. Understanding that some descendant of the woman will someday come who will stamp on the head of the serpent. He will once for all deal with, uh, with the forces, the spiritual forces in the world that create so much heartache and heartbreak for us that cause our marriages to fall apart, that cause our bodies to deteriorate, that uh, cause our relationships to uh, disintegrate. Someday some man's going to come along to set things right. That's the idea. That's what theologians call the prot-evangel, the first giving of the good news. That's good news. Someday your prince will come. Now, Eve thought it was her son. You know, all, all young mothers think that uh, their, their sons or their daughters are the ones that are going to set everything right. And uh, she named her son Cain. Kain, the word. Uh, Hebrew word means acquire. I've acquired the man, she says. That is the man that's promised, who's going to set everything right. But he turned out to be a little brat. Uh, he, he, he just was not the Savior. That became very clear almost within the first year of his life. And so she named her second son Abel, which means breath, lightweight. As my mother used to say, breath and britches, no substance. She learned her lesson, as all parents learn, that there's something wrong with our children. And as you know, as as things got worse, Cain killed his brother, which means he slaughtered a fourth of the human race. You were appalled at what these mad bombers did in Oklahoma City. Hundreds of people that were killed or maimed. But you have to realize what Cain did. He killed a fourth... Of the human stock, when he killed his brother, it's a mass murderer in that sense. So, well, uh, the world became darker and darker, but in the midst of all this darkness, there were people that believed the promise that someday the Savior will come, and they clung to that tightly. People like Enoch, who walked with God, these were godly people, godly men and women who exemplified the life of God in the world and dreamed of the day when the seed would come, and they made proclamation of the seed. But the world got so dark that finally there was nothing socially redeemable in it except the eight people that constituted Noah's family, and so the, the race was exterminated. And when Noah came out of the ark, God said, one of your sons is going to carry the, the promise forward. He, he is from his loins that the seed will spring. His name was Shem. So now we know that the Savior will not only come through the human race, he's not going to be an angel, he's not going to be an alien from outer space, he's going to be a member of the human race, he's going to be a Semite. One-third, the line will come from one-third of the human race. It could be an Assyrian or a Babylonian or an Arab or a Jew. Well, things, uh, time marched on, and, and you still have this hardcore of faith, this believing remnant. And that's why you have the genealogies in Genesis. They're not there just to give you a list of unpronounceable names with which you can impress your friends when you learn how to pronounce them. They're there to show us that there was a believing remnant, a hardcore of faith, people that clung to the promise. See? In the meantime, people are building a tower with the typically grandiose schemes that, that men have, men and women have, you know, build a tower that will reach heaven. And God comes down to look at their little dinky tower and confuses their speech so they can't finish that project. But God is at work on his project. And that's where you have the genealogy in chapter 11, this line of godly people that kept saying one day the Savior's coming, one day the Savior's coming. Keep your eyes on what God is doing in the world while the rest of the world was falling apart at the seams and when you come to the end of the chapter 11 you come to this man named Abram who lived way off in Ur the Chaldees highly sophisticated society one of the most powerful empires of that age and, uh, you have to understand Abram was not a Baptist he was a moon worshiper he was a pagan there was something in his heart he was searching for God and God pre-evangelized him brought him into the land of Canaan said to him Abram I'm going to bless you I'm going to enrich your life and I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to make a great nation out of you and there will be a seed he uses that word again the same word that's used for For the promise to Eve, there'll be a seed. And sort of inherent in that promise is the idea that that is the seed that He promised to Eve, and that is the seed that will bring salvation to the world. And then He said to Abraham, Abraham, you go out and you become a blessing. Where? In Ur of the Chaldees? No, in the land of Canaan, in one of the darkest places on the face of the earth. Why Canaan? Why not Ur of the Chaldees? Well, because Canaan was at the crossroads of the ancient world. It was the most strategic place on the face of the earth. You could not go anywhere without going through Canaan. If you lived in uh, Mesopotamia, up in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and you wanted to get to Egypt, you didn't cut across the desert. Nobody did that. You came through the Fertile Crescent down through the land of Canaan into Egypt. If you lived over in uh, what would be modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor, and you are had to get down to Egypt, you you came through Canaan. If you were on your way from uh, Asia Minor to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, you came through the fertile crescent right through the top of Canaan. Mariners did not cut across the Mediterranean Sea. Their ships were not built for that back then. They they hugged the coast and so they had to put in at seaports along, along uh, the shore of Canaan, the Levant, and they came in contact there with uh, people of that land. You see, it's the most strategic piece of real estate on the face of the earth in those days. Royal Highway ran right up and down the coast. There was another major north-south trade route that ran right up and down that rocky spine that runs from northern Israel all the way to the south. And if you read the book of Genesis, you see Abraham making his way from one place to the next along that that rocky ridge. He put up his little pup tent and he pile some rocks together and he would call on the name of the Lord. That's an idiom for worship. He would worship God wherever he was. He was this wonderful, godly, selfless, thoughtful, sensitive, kind, loving man offering worship wherever he went. It says that he came to to Bethel and there was an oak there, the Oak of Mora it's called. You know why that's significant? It's because the Canaanites worshipped under those oaks. They were they were Baal sites. That's where they built their little Baal altars. and That's where the Baal priests hung out with their cone-shaped hats and their saffron robes. And, and that's where they worshipped. And, and Abraham just built his little altar right there under the Oak of Moran. He worshipped God right in the face of, of, of Canaanite paganism, Baal, Baalism. And if you read Genesis 12 carefully, there's a little, little line, almost, <clears throat> almost a throwaway line. The Canaanites were in the land. That's very significant. Because Abraham was there to give witness in that place. The Old Testament is a, a missionary book like you wouldn't believe. Here's this wonderful, faithful man. No, oh, he wasn't perfect. Struggled in his marriage. Kind of a turkey sometimes when it came to the way he related to his dear wife Sarah, but wherever he went, he, he just faithfully lived out the life of God. I have no idea how many lives he touched as a result. But later, God said, "I, I'm going to cut this covenant with you." That's the idiom that, that that's always used. You cut a covenant in ancient days, and the reason is because the way they made covenants is that they would cut animals in half—goats, and pigs, and pit—not pigs, but pigeons—and and other animals, and they would separate the animals, and then they would walk between them as a sign that they were making a contract. That's That was a standard contract in those days. But in the case of Abraham, God put Abraham to sleep, put him in a coma, literally, lean him up against a tree and put him to sleep, and God passed through the pieces of the animals all by himself theologians say salvation is monergistic that is it is the work of God alone Adam Abraham had nothing to do with it nothing whatever And other words God saying I'm going to be faithful to my covenant no matter what Abraham I'm going to use you to enrich the entire world and then he gave him the, the right of circumcision as a sign as a symbol of the covenant this covenantal relationship Keep in mind the promise. I'm gonna bless the world for Abraham. So now we know first it's the human race, then it's narrowed down to the Semites, and now we know it's Abraham out of all the same Semites and his seed, Isaac is his son, and the promise is handed on to Isaac. And then Jacob was Isaac's son, and and the promise was handed on to Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel, remember? And now we know it's the Israelites that will carry the seed. And in then in the next the last chapter of Genesis, Jacob is talking to his sons, blessing his sons before he passed on. And he said to one of his, he had 12 sons and one daughter. And he says to his son, Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart from your tribe until Shiloh comes. Nobody knows exactly what that word means except there, there is an old, old, old Semitic term Shilu, that means the one who sets every, someone who sets everything right. So here's the man, the man, that was promised to Adam. It was promised to Noah. It was promised to Shem. It was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then we know now it's going to come, he's going to come through the tribe of Judah. So at the end of Genesis 3, uh, uh, Judah and his tribe and all the Israelites are in Egypt. They're there protected by God. And the book of Exodus begins with the Exodus. God does something that's never been done before in history. No analogy for it anywhere in history. Either before or after. Taking an entire nation out of one nation and building another nation. And they're brought out into the Sinai and they're brought down to Mount Sinai and they're given the law. Now, I want to tell you up front that no one was ever brought into relationship with God by keeping the law. That was not the purpose of the law. In Exodus 19, uh, the law, the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. In the chapter that precedes it, chapter 19, you have what I call Moses' eagle-wing speech. Actually, God is the one who speaks through Moses and he says, I... Bore you up on eagle's wings. It's a wonderful picture of grace. It's this mother eagle, you know, with the little eaglets on her, on her back, you know, she's, so the way eagles, mother eagles teach little eagles to fly. They kick them out of the nest and the little eagles start flapping like crazy and, you know, they're about to auger in and the mother swoops up under and picks them up and shakes them off, gives them another try and they flap and then she picks them up. It's a wonderful picture of God's grace. He says, you're like little eaglets, learning how to fly in the desert, taking a lot of tumbles. And he says, what I want of you is to be a holy nation, a nation of priests. In other words, people who will stand between God and the human race. That's what a priest does. They, they share God with the people, and they represent people uh, the people to God. And, and God said, I want this whole nation to be a nation of priests, and I want it to be a holy nation. That's why the law was given so that they would be distinct and unique and different. They would live out the life of God in the world. They would be thoughtful, kind, generous, loving, gracious, courageous, morally tough people in the face of all the awful stuff that was going on around them. That's why the law was given, you see, not to save, but as a result of being in covenant relationship with God and living out that that life before the world. That's what Sinai is all about. And then they went into the land. Joshua is all about the uh, conquest of the land. So now you have you have a godly people living in the land. the The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gave to prepare Israel for the land, and he told them a number of things. You're going to run into people in the land who do not know God. They are pagan people. And I want you to be a holy people in their midst. And secondly, I, I want to tell you that someday you're going to have a king. And this is the kind of king you're going to have. It's a king that I choose. not the people's choice. It's a king that I'm going to choose. And he will be someone who's subject to the law. He'll sit under the words. The kings in those days were the law, but not this king. He, he, he would be subject to God and uh, he's not to multiply horses and he's not to multiply uh, wives he's not to aggrandize himself as the kings of of, of that uh, of that era did he's to be a humble man that's the point and then there was a third thing that Moses did in, in the book of Deuteronomy he told him someday you're going to have one place to worship I, don't, I want you to worship in all these other high places you have one place to worship so he prepared them to be a holy people with a king worshiping and in one place at a central sanctuary. So then Joshua is the story of the conquest of the land. So now they have the land back, and there are holy people living in the land. And then you have the book of Judges, which is the story You know, this incredible debacle where everything just begins to fall apart. And the answer, according to the book of Judges, is that there's no king. There's no king. See, there's no one to exemplify to encourage to uh, exemplify righteousness and to encourage people toward righteousness there's no king no king in Israel every man does what's right in his own eyes so then you have the book of 1 Samuel this wonderful woman Hannah who had more insight than almost anybody else of that time and and she sings her song in 1 Samuel 2 it's largely overlooked you must go back and read that song because what she says is that God's going to raise up a king and he's going to be a humble man. God raises up the humble and he puts down the proud, she says. Amazing insight into the king that God was going to provide. And, of course, you have the first effort, which was Saul, who was an utterly fleshly man, who was the people's choice. He was not God's choice. He's an experiment in and utter failure, and then then David comes along, man after God's own heart, a humble man, rode on a donkey. All the other kings of that age, uh, they've rode in chariots drawn by stallions. David rode around on a little mule with his feet dragging the ground, it's like like President Clinton driving a Volkswagen. Humble man, a man after God's own heart. Oh, he had his problems. Eaten by lust as well as the love of God, but but he he had a great heart for God. It stands as the exemplary king. You read Chronicles, for example. He's the king par excellence. Best example of what a king king ought to be. Second Samuel, you know, David wanted to build a house for God. All it was we had a king in the land, we have a people there that are that are seeking God to a certain extent living out righteousness. They're in the land that's crucial strategic piece of real estate they're ready to touch the gentile world and begin to set things right they're waiting for the the king to come whom whom david uh, exemplifies and david says the only thing lacking is a house we got to build a house for god one place to worship And David started amassing materials and money, millions of dollars that went into that project that he laid aside the materials to build it and he was all ready to go and God said, David, I don't want to build, I don't want you to build a house for me. It's not your job. You you were a a fighting man. Your job was to to deal with the nations that that persisted in Canaan and specifically the Philistines. Uh, your call was to be a warrior. Solomon's the man of peace. He's going to build me a house. But David, let me tell you, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God is playing on, on words. He's talking about David's dynasty. And he says, David, do you remember how I took you from the, from the fold when you were just a little shepherd boy? And I, I made a king out of you. And I want you to know that one of these days, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. And David was, was astonished. He said, That I should be a part of the line of the man. He uses that term, uh, the teaching of the man, uh, the Torah of the man is the word that he What man? the man that was promised Eve that I should be in that line, he says. Incredible. And and it was that understanding that sustained David throughout the rest of his life that he was gonna he was part of this great promise and plan of God to bring salvation to the world. That someday one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. That he was the prince who was to come. That's why David would say, the Lord says to my Lord. And the New Testament picks that up. And he's talking about one of his descendants as his Lord. It's unheard of in an Eastern culture. Where it's your, your fathers who are exalted. He exalts one of his sons way in the future. The Lord said to my Lord. He, he understood That he was part of this great line that God had put together to bring salvation to the world. And Solomon comes to the throne and he he builds the house. So now you have it all together. The point of Solomon's wisdom is that now you have a king who has been taught of God. If you read 1 Kings 3, Solomon's wisdom did not come from himself, it came from God. So you have a godly king, a wise king in the land, giving direction to his people, teaching his people. Uh, You have a godly priesthood serving at at a central sanctuary, a temple. Everything is in place. You know, there's an ancient Jewish tradition that the Queen of Sheba, (coughs) it says First Kings 10, that she came to test Solomon with hard questions. She she wasn't posing riddles she was talking about the tough hard questions of life it says she came and told him everything that was in her heart she wanted to know how to heal a hurting marriage she wanted to know what to do with guilt she wanted to know how to deal with death Death, she was asking him those hard questions that people ask and he was able to answer her and she gave him in thanksgiving nine million dollars worth of gold and silver and precious stones and, and spices and it's it's, large, it's widely believed that the spices she gave were balsam trees, and those were planted all over all over Israel. And traditionally, Jews say that, that, that the aroma of that balsam uh, he could be picked out way, you know, far out to sea by mariners. And you, you simply stepped into the land of Israel, and there was a sweet aroma everywhere you went. It's a wonderful picture of what Israel was intended to be, a sweet savor to God there to attract people to the temple where they could worship and find God It was a place of prayer where the Gentiles could come and, and find the God that they'd been looking for all, all of their life. That's why Jesus was so outraged that the clergy of his day were using the temple for themselves to aggrandize themselves and enrich themselves instead of using it as a place where the Gentiles should come and could come and find God. Everything's in place. Here's Israel back in the land. The temple's built. Wisdom goes forth. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses had said to the people, Time's coming when the Gentiles are going to come seek you, and they're going to go away and say, What a wise and understanding people. God gave to Israel the oracles of God. He revealed things to them that he did not reveal to anyone else, but not for themselves, so they could make proclamation to the Gentile world. And once again, everything began to fall apart. Solomon married into royal families uh, for political reasons, to form alliances. They brought their gods and goddesses in, corrupted his heart. The whole thing went down. And within a period of so, uh, hundred and something years, God had to take the nation into captivity and the temple was destroyed the babylonians burned it to the ground pried every stone apart, left the place in rubble deported all the priests all the godly people the only ones were left were the ones that the prophets described as the bad figs it's a horrible time you get the impression that god just swept it all aside so he could start all over and that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. He started all over. And he set out to build a whole new race. A new Israel. In a new land. Worshiping in a new temple. But the same purpose in mind to declare, as Peter puts it, the excellencies of God to the Gentiles. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but almost always in the New Testament, where the word Gentile occurs, it's used symbolically, not of ethnic Gentiles, but of non-Christians. The reason is that we now are the new Israel. The seed has come, see, and our our task is to make proclamation of the seed the land is uh, your sphere of influence it's not a piece of real estate over in the middle east it is wherever you live and work it's your neighborhood it's your office it's your school that's your land that's the most tr- where you are is the most strategic place on the face of the earth do you see that and what you are both individually and corporately is a temple uh, let me read what what how peter describes uh Describes this new race. He says, You're a chosen people. That's the word it's used in the Old Testament for the Jews. A royal priesthood. Same word he same term he uses in, in Exodus nineteen. A holy nation. Same term. A people belonging to God. Again, the same term that's used in, in Exodus nineteen of Israel. It's God's treasure, his special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what you're here for. It's what I'm here for. Not to make a pile of money. Not to make a name for ourselves. But to declare the excellencies of God. See, we are that hardcore of faith now around which everything revolves. We're the believing remnant who have the responsibility of bringing the Gentile world, the non-Christian world, in. Draw them in. Draw them near to the heart of God. Now that's a lot of information to try to absorb in uh, twenty minutes. But now with that in your back in the back of your mind, I want to turn to Ephesians two, verses eleven through twenty-two. And I'm just going to read this and annotate it briefly. And let you draw your own conclusions. Now In both verses 1 through 10 and 11 through 22, he's comparing and contrasting life before and after Christ. In verses 2, 1 through 10, he begins by saying, B.C., before Christ, you were dead. Stone cold dead when you came out of the womb. But you've been made alive in Christ. Now in verses 11 through 22, he uses the same argument. Therefore, remember that formerly, verse 11, you were Gentiles, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And let me read, uh, beginning with verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. See, that, that term, uncircumcised, became a pejorative term. The Jews, uh, unfortunately, uh, in, instead of using their privilege in order to make proclamation, used the, what God gave to them to separate themselves from others. And before, before we all get real pious and, and, and get down on the Jews, we, we do the same thing, quite frankly. And, and Paul is concerned about that, as he will tell us. But see, the, the Jews were saying, the Goy, the Goyim, the, the Gentiles, the, that, the uncircumcised masses, these, these Philistines out there, that they don't know God, they don't know any better, they're ignorant of the law, and, and they had separated themselves from the Gentiles around them. Remember, formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision the circumcision remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Christ is the anglicized form of the Greek word for Messiah. Christos is the Greek word for Messiah Mashiach is the Hebrew word for Messiah. same word same word. Christ is not a not a name it's a title. Messiah, you were separated from Messiah. We didn't have a Messiah as Gentiles. We didn't have a prince who was coming, a once-coming and King. We didn't have any of that. Uh, the Egyptians in one of their uh, one of their uh, wisdom writings cry out for a, some Egyptian sage cries out for the, a shepherd. Where is the shepherd that will lead us out of the messes we make for ourselves? Is the point that he's making? in Israel had our Messiah, you Gentiles. He said, you didn't have one. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Israel had a most favored nation status in God's mind. You were excluded. You were aliens, outsiders, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They had the promises that they handed on. We didn't have any promises. Without hope and without God in the world, he doesn't mean that uh, the Gentiles of that age were atheists. There were very few atheists in the ancient world. He means what Paul, what he says, uh, what he means in another place when he says y- you were enslaved to non-gods, that is, things that are not gods, idols. They had their gods, but they didn't know the, the living and, and true God. They had no hope. And only death to look forward to. And no hope of a resurrection. And no hope of empowerment and, between birth and death. Hopeless without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's a near quotation from Isaiah 57. Where Isaiah points out that uh, the you Gentiles, he says, were far off. But the time is coming when you're going to be brought near. There's a little chorus that goes near, so very near to God, nearer I could not be. For in the person of His Son, I am as near as He. We're as close to God as His Son, Jesus Christ, is because of the cross. He Himself is our peace. It's the one who makes peace. Who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one. That's what the church is. There are Jews, and there are Gentiles, and then there is the church. There are really three entities. The church now is composed of Jew and Gentile made one. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, that is the hostility between Jew and Gentile. That's all been torn down. That hostility was symbolized in their temple in a wall that divided the Gentiles from the Jews. It was never intended to be there in, in Solomon's temple. The temple was to be open to everyone, but the Jews of, 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 of latter days, the second commonwealth, they, they, they erected a wall there to keep the Gentiles on the outside. In fact, there was a sign. They have the sign. I mean, you can see it in a museum in, in Israel today. There was a sign on the wall that no Gentile could come through those gates under penalty of death. The very temple that was designed to draw the Gentile world to God became a place where they were excluded and they separated between men and women. They had a court of men and a court of women and they had a court for the priests and they had a court for the laity and that's why Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female nor slave nor free and no more elitism, no more sexism No more racism. All of that, he says, has been swept aside. The barriers that separated us, the walls, have been torn down. How did he do that? Well, he did it in the cross by abolishing in his flesh his body hanging on the cross. The law with its commandments and all of its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So he reconciled Jew to Gentile. Tearing down the hostility between them. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility to God. You see what he's saying? Here, Jew and Gentile, the two most disparate groups in the whole world, they couldn't get along with each other. They couldn't stand each other. And they were hostile toward each other. God put the two together, Jew and Gentile. And then here is the human race. And here is God. And here is another dividing wall. And he put that new man that he created into a uh, reconciled state with God. So that this one body, which is the church, is now as near to God as as Jesus Christ is. And then He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. There's, there's our word, far away Gentiles, near Jews. The preaching here is through the apostles. Jesus preached through the apostles, announcing peace. For through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. You see now how it begins to, to fit together once you, once you understand the background? Consequently, he says, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners, that is, uh, people without without a country and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. It's the word for saints, which is the Old Testament word for Israel and God's people, which is translated in the New Testament into the church. We are the saints today, not because we are saintly, but because we have been sanctified by the cross. And we were members of God's house. One of the difficulties in this passage is that he he mixes metaphors. Paul is, does that a lot. He switches metaphors on us right in the middle of the stream. He's talking to. I did too, as a matter of fact. Right then, I just realized uh, he he <laughs> he's talking about. He's using a political metaphor of statehood, and he switches to an architectural metaphor. He says, "Oh, you're you're, you're Israelites." Cheer up, you Gentiles. God's made you very kosher. See, You're part of the people of God. You're part of this line that carried the seed. Uh, Paul will go so far as to say in Galatians 3, you are the seed of Abraham. You're part of that promise that was given to Abraham spiritually. See? Ethnically, you may be a Gentile, but spiritually, you're a Jew because you've been joined to that, that seed. And you can have the same attitude that David had toward that, that promise. And then he, he, he switches over here to an architectural symbol and says, oh yeah, you're also a house. And, and, and Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone to go down. It, it established the lie of the building, see, the direction that it went. And then the apostles and prophets came along and laid the foundation. And as Paul will say in another place, there's really only one foundation that can be laid. And that's Christ Jesus. They came and they preached Christ. And you all as living stones are being built into this house to produce what? A holy temple. <laughs> A place where worship goes on night and day. Not just Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Wherever you find yourself. So here's Israel in the land worshiping in their temple, drawing all Gentile nations to that place where they can find God. And here we are, the new Israel, in our land, which is your sphere of influence wherever you find yourself. Part of that state through which God intended to touch the entire world. And you are that temple that God is building that is there in order to make the living God known to the rest of the world. Notice how he puts it? In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. And in him, you Gentiles too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And the rest of the book of Ephesians is simply an explication of what it means to be a holy temple and to be a, the people of God in your sphere of influence. You'll notice uh, the next very next chapter starts out for this reason. I Paul and he gets lost again in his argument. He has to come back to it midway through the chapter, and he says, "For this reason, I pray for you. I pray for you." He says that Christ will dwell deep down in your hearts. And that you'll know all the dimensions of the love of God. And that you will be filled with the fullness of God, which he then spells out in terms of of, of a number of specifics. To live a life worthy of the calling you've received, being completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and soul. But he's talking about character, the character of God, which coincides with our calling, which goes back to our purpose, which is to make the living God known. I'm out of time, but I want you to do some thinking about that this week and just remember who you are and what you're here for, and I hope you get just as excited as David did when you realize that you're part of that line that God promised that would bring salvation to the world. While the men are coming forward to serve the communion elements, men and women, I want to read uh, a prayer that a dear friend of mine sent me some years ago. I have it hanging over my study desk at home, and it's, it's my constant prayer. All through this day, Lord, let me touch as many lives as possible for Thee. And every life I touch, do Thou by Thy Holy Spirit quicken, that is, make alive. Whether through the Word I speak, the prayer I breathe, the letters I write, or the life I live. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Let's pray. Lord, that would be our prayer as well, that as your people in our inheritance, our place would be filled and flooded with God and would make manifest his character wherever we go, that we would touch as many lives as possible for you. And that every life we touch would would be quickened, every person become more alive than they ever were before as a result of coming in, into contact with us, whether it's through the words we speak, the prayers we breathe, the letters we write, or the life we live. And we do pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, who is our Lord. Amen.